0: Well, we've been in Revelation for over a year now with just a few weeks to go. And after months of judgment and wrath and destruction, we finally got to the last four chapters. Good stuff, you know, like the Hallelujah Chorus and the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, the glorious return of Jesus Christ, the Battle of Armageddon, which was really no battle at all. Jesus simply destroyed the armies gathered to oppose him. And uh, and then he cast the Antichrist and the false Prophet in the lake of fire. All that remains is chapter 20 with the resurrection of the just and, and, and uh, to life and the resurrection of the unjust judgment. Then we will finally arrive at chapters 21 and 22 the new heaven and the new earth when God will dwell with his people. Hallelujah. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. <laughs> Not yet. But we are on a sprint to the finish. I mean, all has been good, right? I mean, we rounded the corner on the final home stretch. The crowd is cheering. And then I took my commentaries with me on vacation. Don't know why. And read things like this. Here we have the most, uh, here we have the famous millennial text, certainly the most debated text in the book of Revelation. Yay. (laughs) This text is the most controversial in the book of Revelation, and interpreters debate the credibility of various millennial views. <laughs> Next, this, brought us, this brings us to one of the most difficult parts of the entire book. There have been endless disputes, some of them very bitter, over the way to understand this chapter. Evangelicals have Divided. From one another, and sometimes they've been quite intolerant of views other than those of their own group. (laughs) And then this is easily uh, the best known portion of the book, as well as one of the most divisive passages in the Bible. I couldn't believe it. Few issues have divided the church for as long as this, for the church in the first three centuries had extensive debates over this topic. Uh, By the way, that last one, those were the first few sentences I read while on vacation. I don't know why I took them, but well, there you go. Good thing I had my wife and the beach and grandkids to distract me. Now, there were many more commentaries that I could quote, but you kind of get the idea. This is a a challenging church-dividing text. But I do want to quote some of those same commentators who went on to say this. Leanne Morris said, "...it is necessary to approach the chapter with humility and charity." That's an old word for love. Listen, there are issues to divide over. I do not believe Revelation 20 is one of them. Tom Schreiner says, "...unfortunately, Clarity will be lacking on this issue until Jesus returns. Fortunately, the central truth is that Jesus is indeed returning. Hallelujah. And then finally, my favorite Grant Osborne writes, this issue will not be solved until the events take place. And then we will see who is right. (laughs) Until then, we should not, we should not fight over these issues, but be iron sharpening iron as we work together for the kingdom. This has hopefully been my attitude in approaching the entire book of Revelation. I've said several times the most difficult book I've ever taught. Whether teaching a preterist, historical, idealist, or futurist view, a dispensational or covenant view, or a pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib rapture view, and hopefully by now you even might know what some of those terms mean. (laughs) In In regard to that hopefully gentle grace. I watched a video recently titled An Evening of Eschatology, moderated by John Piper. Three others uh, sat with him around the table discussing their respective millennial positions which I will cover briefly in just a few moments. There was Sam Storms, who I highly admire and respect, representing the all millennial view, Doug Wilson representing the post millennial view, and James Hamilton representing the premillennial view, which incidentally uh, John Piper holds. They were most gracious with one another while disagreeing and ended the whole evening with a mutual commitment to Christ and his gospel, which includes the unerring promise of his return, and they ended with a mutual love and respect toward one another. That would be nice. I I quote Doug Wilson, who along with Piper was most gracious and frankly humorous when he said, I don't mind changing my theology midair. I do not plan to thoroughly examine each position and thereby bore you to tears, but simply give you a definition. Uh, understand, this is not a seminary class, and some of you would say, "Amen." You should remember that occasionally, Scott. I, I would suggest that we have. Listen carefully. We have people in this room holding each one of these views, brothers and sisters. In fact, when I give my position, some of you will undoubtedly be tempted to approach me following the service to set me straight. Now that's fine, but understand three things. First, my position and yours can likely be substantiated biblically. Second, they are held by various godly, conservative, biblical scholars who agree to disagree. And third, you should know that I have Piper on my side, so good luck. Before briefly summarizing these three positions, let's go, ahead, shall we? let's go ahead and read the text, and you can settle into your likely already held position. All right. Uh, Re- Revelation 20, this most divisive text reads as follows. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. So far, so good. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years. He's going to keep saying that, by the way, thousand years. Were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the A thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them like the sand of the seashore, and they and they came up on the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and Fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the priest, or where the, the beast and the false prophets are also and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. By way of continued introduction, what are the three positions? that are held, largely, and with some variation on this text. Almost all the commentaries um, summarize them, and then I went on to gently, or, well, not so gently, suggest why their position was right. Fingers crossed. That, that, that's what I will do, hopefully gently. I, I found this chart in Steve Gregg's book, Revelation, Four Views, quite insightful, Four Views, because he, as he went through the book of Revelation, he. He gave the commentary of the four views, the preterist, the historical, the futurist, and the idealist view side by side. But when he got to Revelation 20, he summarized it under these three positions, amillennial, postmillennial, and pre-millennial. And so I just want to share this um, with you. I think that it will be helpful. The amillennial approach. Uh, held by covenant theologians. Uh, says this, the binding of Satan, which, with which this chapter begins, the binding of Satan represents the victory of Christ over the powers of darkness accomplished at the cross. Now, don't, don't miss that. Meaning, Satan was bound at the cross. Further, Satan's binding was not complete, since, well, he's obviously still active, but he is bound or limited in regard to deceiving the nations. Some say it this way, Satan is bound, but he has a very long leash. It goes on, the thousand years is symbolic for a long uh, indeterminate period corresponding to the age of the church. That is, don't miss this, from the death of Christ to the return of Christ, so currently 2,000 years and counting, which means the millennium is happening Right now in heaven, just not on earth. So the amillennial, the, the, even the title is a little bit of a misnomer. They do believe in a millennium. They just say the millennium is happening right now in, in heaven. Satan next will be loosed briefly to wreak havoc and to persecute the church at the end of the present church age. The fire coming from heaven and consuming the wicked is symbolic of Christ's second coming. Uh, A general resurrection and judgment of both the evil and the good will occur at Christ's coming, followed by the creation of the new heaven and new earth. By the way, the first resurrection, they say, is a spiritual resurrection when people are born again, when they're saved, brought from spiritual death, you see, to spiritual life. That's a resurrection. And the second resurrection then will be a physical resurrection when all are raised either for life or for judgment. And please note, last, the millennium is a current kingdom being presently enjoyed in heaven by those who are there. When Jesus returns, he will return with his people, Allah, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He will destroy Satan after he has been released, throw him into the lake of fire where his buddies are, the Antichrist and the false prophet, as well as all unbelievers. And then we, believers, will enter the eternal state in the new heaven and the new earth. So that's the all-millennial position, which brings us to the post-millennial approach, which goes like this. Simply stated, post-millennial, Jesus returns at the end of the millennium. Now, some post interpret the chapter essentially the same as those all-millennialists, but with an added note, this is important, an added note of optimism about the success of the gospel in the church in the present age. Again, important. Those holding this view generally agree that the gospel will successfully permeate the earth, which means the world will at some point, some future point, be evangelized And largely be Christianized. The world is going to be Christian. Uh, Some see the binding of Satan uh, to represent a future point when the successful preaching of the gospel will have effectively reduced Satan's influence to nothing. In other words, it is the church and the gospel that ultimately binds Satan. The thousand years may or may not be a literal duration, but speaks of the future glorious age. Sometimes you maybe have heard it as as the golden age. Everything's going to get better and better. Actually, uh, because of the spread of the gospel prior to the second coming, in which the influence of the gospel will have universal sway. I'm lo- you're not taking notes. So, kidding. I wouldn't either. A final um, attempt on the part of a loose Satan at the end of the age will get nowhere. It's a little bit, I don't quite understand that part. Satan's going to be loosed. He's bound by the gospel and the church where the, I don't know, anyway, he's going to be loosed. In fact, Satan and those who join him will be defeated and cast into the lake of fire. A general resurrection uh, and judgment of all people, again, both coming to life at the same time will occur at the coming of Christ. Still with me? Okay. Let's look at the third view. The third view is the premillennial uh, approach. And dare I say that most of you have been taught and likely hold this view. This one will sa- if the other two didn't sound familiar, this one will sound familiar to you because most of you, even if you don't know it, believe it, all right? Here it is. The binding of Satan is still future. It will take place when Christ returns since Satan is obviously very active today, as is noted, by the way, throughout the New Testament. Incidentally, when Christ returns... The first resurrection will take place. That is, it is a bodily resurrection of the just, since they will be raised to rule with him. Remember First Thessalonians 4? When Jesus comes back, his saints will come with him, their bodies will be raised. That's the first resurrection. The second resurrection that we read about in verses eleven and following next week is the resurrection of the unjust to face the judgment. The thousand years is a literal period. Stop right there. A thousand is ten cubed. Ten is the number of perfection. So three times perfection. It's a perfect amount of time. Whether it's a thousand or about or thereabouts, whatever, is not important. What is important is the literal period during which Christ will reign on earth from Jerusalem with his people. The loosing of Satan will, ha- will bring the millennium to a climax, actually to a close, when Satan will be defeated, followed by the resurrection and judgment of the wicked, as what is called the great white throne judgment. Then the new heaven and new earth will be created after the millennium, that is a thousand years after Christ's second coming, and then we will enter the eternal state. Are you with me? Okay. So these are generally the three positions with some variations within each one. As I reviewed those positions, were you able to d- determine the position that you hold? Okay, like three of you, okay. Um, how many of you don't care, you'll decide mid-air? <laughs> I have told you that I hold a futurist view of the Book of Revelation, which also means that I hold the millennium to be future. In other words, I don't believe we're in it right now, either in heaven or on earth. And so, I generally—I'm going to just go ahead and put my cards on the table. I I (laughs) generally—I want to get out of arm's throw. I generally hold a premillennial view of this chapter, and we'll teach it um, as such. You see, while I understand that the book is not always strictly chronological, it seems to me that a clear, a simple reading of the text seems somewhat chronological. That is, the second coming is followed by the battle of Armageddon, in which, don't miss this, the false prophet and the Antichrist are cast into the lake of fire, so they're already there when Satan is later, Cast in chronological. But the dragon, still loose till we get to chapter 20, after the return of Christ, Satan will be bound for a thousand years, locked up in the abyss, after which he will be fully and finally defeated, cast in the lake of fire, and then we will enter the eschaton, that is the new heaven and the new earth. <sighs> there we go. So let's make our way briefly through this text, since I've largely already taught it, um, with this outline: Satan is bound. Then we see Christ's millennial reign, and then Satan's loosing and ultimate defeat. By the way, if I were to continue that outline of the rest of the chapter, which we will, Lord willing, next week in verses 11 to 15, we will see the judgment of the unrighteous, that is unbelievers, in the second resurrection. The fact that there is a first implies that there is a second. So look at verses 1 to 3 to see Satan bound. An angel comes down from heaven holding the key. This is the fourth time that someone holding a key is mentioned. Uh, Jesus held, holds the key of death in Hades, and there's a the key of David. Then there's this uh, angel that comes down in Revelation chapter 9 who holds a key to the abyss and opens it. And then there is this angel who closes it. Key to the abyss comes down. Ch- again, chapter 9. When it was opened by the angel, a horde of locust-like demons were released. Um, there, as God's judgment was being poured out, the angel opened the abyss. Now the prince of demons is to be chained and locked in the abyss. Obviously, this is apocalyptic language. Satan is a spirit of fallen angel. We don't, think, we don't really think of him as being chained. But the idea, I think, is that he is completely restrained that is not on a leash completely restrained i mean look at verse two it's as if john is trying to make a point the angel lays hold of the dragon i love this by the way i forgot to mention this first service one of my commentaries pointed out god didn't even do it i mean satan is so unimportant he sends an angel to take care of his light work and he binds him and throws him into the abyss Lays hold of the dragon, who is the serpent of old, who deceived Eve, the devil and Satan our adversary, who is the deceiver and the slanderer and the accuser of the children of God, and binds him for a thousand years. Again, that's apocalyptic, but John uses that term a thousand years six times in these verses. Seems like he's perhaps making a point. And notice the completeness of the binding. He is bound. The angel throws him into the abyss. That is the bottomless pit. He shuts it. He seals it. It sure doesn't seem like that Satan is merely on a leash. He will be locked away. See, everyone agrees that Satan is active now, but it appears that he will not be then. He will be completely confined for 1,000 years so as to not deceive the nations any longer. You see, during this age... The church age from the death of Christ to the return of Christ he has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they will not see the glory of of the gospel in the face of Christ he is called the God of this world he's the prince of the power of the air the spirit and the sons of disobedience In Ephesians 2 he prowls around in first Peter looking for someone to devour now I believe by deception and by possession or oppression but here, I believe no longer. He will be bound completely helpless. The text seems to say, in the abyss, the bottomless pit, for a thousand years or however long that perfect time is. Yes, at the end, he will be released for a short time. Why? What does this all mean? We'll come back to that in just a moment. You See, this brings us to our second point, the millennial reign of Christ in verses 4 to 6. John says, then I saw thrones... And they sat on them, and the judgment was given to them. He doesn't clarify who they or them are. I guess it's their preferred pronouns. (laughs) Come on, that's just a joke. Lighten up. It doesn't clarify who they are. It could be referring to a heavenly court, like the 24 elders sitting on thrones. But the rest of the verses seem to identify who they are. But even then, it's a little bit ambiguous. John says he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded, which speaks of martyrdom. In fact, the word actually speaks of having your heads chopped off with an axe (laughs) because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. They did not love their lives even to the point of death. It's a clear reference, clear reference to the fifth seal back in chapter 6. Remember when the fifth seal was opened, John saw underneath the altar in heaven the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony which they had maintained. Same wording. Wording. And we saw they cry out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they're given white robes and told to wait just a little while longer until the number of those to be killed would be killed. There's a number to be completed. You see, it costs something to be a Christian. In chapter 20, these who had been killed for their faith came to life reigned with Christ for a thousand years, this thousand years throughout I think is the same period of time. But now look very closely at the middle of verse 4, and I saw the souls, souls, that's an interesting word, that is disembodied souls awaiting the resurrection of their martyred bodies. Some call this, I think it's a good term, their intermediate state. Follow this, because this will be encouraging. When people die as believers, their bodies are buried awaiting future resurrection. But their souls immediately go to heaven to be with Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? So when Tim Keller died, day before yesterday, his body will be buried this weekend, next week, I don't know. But his soul immediately went to heaven to be with the Savior that he loves. He said, on Thursday, I can't wait to see Jesus. You see, but the second coming bodies will be resurrected. First Thessalonians chapter four. The dead in Christ will rise first. Jesus promised this to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. And, and, and when we remember that, uh, Pete, uh, that Paul said to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Remember, uh, uh, Paul also said in Philippians chapter 1 that he, he would rather die and be with Christ, which is better by far. Which begs the question, why do we hang on so tenaciously to this life? Again, there's, this is that intermediate or disembodied state. Right now, people who know Jesus or are God's people are in heaven awaiting the resurrection of their bodies. They're their, their spirits, their're souls. We also remember Jesus said there's coming a day when all those who are in the grave will hear his voice and come out. That is to be physically raised to life. You remember the story of uh, in John chapter 11 of the resurrection of, of Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus had been dead for about four years. And so Jesus finally makes his way to Bethany and Mary and Martha, a little upset with him. And uh, he says, hey, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And then to demonstrate that, he goes to the tomb of Lazarus. Been in there four days. Surely he sticketh by now. And he calls Lazarus but remember what the words that he used when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. People say jokingly, but I think rightly he had to say Lazarus if he just said come forth and all of the graves would have emptied. Because there's coming a day when all those who are in the tomb will hear his voice and come forth to physical resurrection seems to be what is happening here with these martyrs. But notice the verse goes on. The souls of those martyred because of their faith and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. they These came to life. So clearly believers, not just those beheaded, come to life to reign with Christ. I think, lots of opinion about this, I think that all believers of all time will come to life in this first resurrection and reign with Christ. My brothers and sisters, this promise is made to us throughout the scripture. Chapter 3 of this book, Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Chapter 2, he said to the church in Thyatira, He who overcomes, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a the rod of iron. Not authority, but authority over the nations. That's here on earth. He had told his disciples that they would sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That is, rule over, reign in the world. In 2 Timothy, he said, Paul said, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Listen, it is all over the scripture. The point is, Revelation 20, while special attention is given to the martyrs, the scripture seems clear that believers, that is, you and me, will reign and even judge with Christ. I think right here during this millennial kingdom. Notice verse 5. Rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So again, I think all believers will be resurrected at the second coming when Christ comes back. So here's my, here's my understanding. Jesus is going to come back with those saints who have already gone to heaven. He's going to come back with them. And then those who are still alive and remain will meet the Lord in the air and come back with him. Right? And then those... Saints are coming back, their bodies will be resurrected. So, again, I think all believers will be resurrected the second coming, the first resurrection, and will reign with Christ. The rest of the dead will be resurrected 1,000 years later to face the great white throne judgment. So, verse 6 Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection over these the second death has no power let those words sink in second death we will find the second death is to be cast into eternal torment in the lake of fire you look at that next week but that's what awaits unbelievers the second undying death. But here those in the first resurrection will instead be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. We remember the song of the twenty four elders and the four living creatures back in chapter 5. You remember a search is made in heaven for someone found worthy to take the book sealed with seven seals and to open it and the search was made and no one was found worthy to open the book and John weeps and an angel comes and don't weep behold the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to take the book to open its seals and he turned and he looks and he sees the lamb as it had been slain. And so at that point Chapter 5, 24 elders and the four living creatures cry out and sing out in praise. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. You made them to be what? A kingdom of priests to God and they will reign on the earth fulfilled right here in Revelation chapter 20. But the end of that thousand years in the millennium, Satan will be released, which brings us very quickly to our last point, Satan's ultimate defeat, verses 7 to 10. I'm simply going to make our way quickly through these verses. When the thousand years is completed, Satan will be released from his prison, not, not loosed from his leash, released from his prison in which he has been confined. And he will come out to once again deceive the nations, which are throughout the four corners of the earth. Notice Gog and Magog. Gog is the king. Magog is the land or its people. This is a reference to Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, which speaks, I think prophetically, of the unbelieving armies of the world gathering for one final assault war against Christ. And by the way, chapters 40 to 48 of Ezekiel is Ezekiel's temple. I think he's describing as best he can the new heavens and the new earth anyway the armies will gather and their number will be as the sands of the sea don't miss that what Christ has been ruling and reigning for a thousand years and Satan has been in prison where did these armies come from well when the Millennium begins it'll be inhabited by resurrected Saints who will reign with Christ It appears from the beloved city, I think Jerusalem. But not all people will be believers in the millennium. Where did they come from? Before the second coming, the armies of the world gathered, the armies of the world gathered for the battle of Armageddon, and they're defeated by Christ, destroyed at the second coming. But not everybody is part of the army of the world. They can't all fit in the plain of Megiddo. People are still all over the planet And and their armies will be defeated. And these unbelievers will enter, I think, the millennial kingdom. they will live, they will bear children, and they will be ruled by Christ. We'll come back to that in just a second. Verse 9, they will gather in the broad plain, the breadth of the plain of the earth. Interesting wording. It's speaking of throughout the earth in rebellion against Christ. What? Christ has been ruling and He's perfect. How can they not submit to him? I don't know. How did they put him to death on a cross? Because depravity is complete. It will surround the camp of the saints, a metaphor for believers, especially around the capital in the beloved city of Jerusalem, then fire will come from heaven and devour them all, once and for all. Again, there is no war here. It is over in an instant. Are you listening to me? And then the devil, who deceived them, will be thrown into the lake of fire, where the Antichrist and the false prophet already are. They They were back in chapter 19, now chapter 20. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And we say hallelujah, right? I mean, the the enemy of God has been defeated. Keep that in mind. As we come to the lake of fire again next week, and it will be very hard to hear when the enemies of Christ will be similarly cast into the lake of fire. Here's the question then as we close, why? Okay, that's just a lot of information. I could have gone all my life with all, all of that. Why? Why the millennial kingdom, Scott? Why Satan bound? Why unbelievers in the kingdom where they are ruled? perfectly by Christ, why is Satan then released, and why, and why? Please tell me, why do the people rebel? Great question. The answer is simply this. The earth dwellers or unbelievers on the earth have been given opportunity time after time after time to repent and turn in faith to Christ, and yet they reject every opportunity to do so. Why? Some of you here, why? Why? During the millennium, they are forced to experience the glorious reign of Christ for 1,000 years with no Satan to deceive them. Yet when he is released, they will flock to him and follow him in his continued rebellion. Why would they do that? The purpose of all of this is to demonstrate the depth and power of total depravity and to justify the necessity of eternal torment. It proves that even 1,000 years of Christ's benevolent and righteous reign is not enough to overturn the earth dwellers allegiance to Satan and love of their own sin. And So while we say hallelujah to the unholy trinity, Antichrist, false prophet, and Satan himself being cast into the eternal torment of the lake of fire, we will also recognize the just deserts for those who continue to continue and continue to rebel against God. Why would you do that? By the way, this text also serves as a final vindication for those who have followed Christ, despite. A great cost of doing so that they, they follow Christ and did not love their lives even to the point of death so here's the final question that I have for you this morning will you bow your knee and humble repentance and faith in Jesus Christ accepting who he is and what he has done so that your sins could be forgiven reconciled to God or will you continue in your stiff necked opposition and rebellion because the truth is you love your sin? Will you continue in that, having heard the end that awaits each choice? Let's stand for prayer. Um. And, and so we've heard a text that talks about two resurrections. we'll read about the second one next week. And we've heard about the end that awaits Satan and his followers, and the, end that, the glorious end that awaits those who know Jesus. And so my invitation to you is to believe the gospel, to turn your life in faith to Jesus Christ. Why would you not? Read the book see what awaits, and believe. Father, I pray in Christ's name that you would do your work. And and amongst this, your people, most I know in this room, know Jesus. Some do not. And I pray that you would call them to yourself and they would repent and believe and find living for Christ is the best life possible. And for those of us who have been distracted by what this world has to offer and live lives that are unpleasing to you, we ask for forgiveness. And we ask for a redoubling of our commitment to you to live faithful as faithful followers of Jesus, recognizing that he is coming. However it unfolds, he's coming, and we want to be found faithful. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.